Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, such a joy to be up here with you this morning as we continue our study through the book of Psalms. And today we are in Psalm 39. We are nearing the end of it. We just have two more weeks, Psalm 40 and Psalm 41, uh, before we move back to the New Testament. But I'm glad to be up here with you this morning and to teach through Psalm 39. So last month, a story hit the news that you might have seen. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and one of the richest men in the world, he invested in a company called Altos Labs. And that's a startup company that's dedicated to reverse, to discovering how to reverse the aging process. And this wasn't the first company that Jeff Bezos has invested in for anti-aging technology. He's also not the only one investing in this field. Uh, Google co-founder Larry Page has also invested in a biotech company focused on longevity research. Longevity research like liquid computers targeted to shut down cells carrying viral diseases. And Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, he's also invested millions of dollars into life extension research seeking to cheat death. He firmly disagrees with the ideology of the inevitability of death for every individual. People are looking for and investing lots of money in ways to live longer, healthier lives. And on one level, we should celebrate that, right? As Christians, we care about life and suffering. And so we cheer on advances in medicine and agriculture that help to alleviate suffering and to improve human flourishing. But we can't cheat death. Technology will not enable us to avoid the inevitability of death. And medieval Christians, they had a wise warning on this. It was memento mori, remember that you have to die. To the Christian, the prospect of death serves to emphasize the emptiness and fleetingness of earthly pleasures, luxuries, and achievements. And it is an invitation to focus one's thoughts on the prospect of eternity with God in the afterlife. And this is a truth that it would benefit all of us to remember and to live in light of. And it's biblical. In fact, it's a central theme here in Psalm 39. The ESV translation even titles this chapter as, What is the measure of my days? And similar to last week's psalm, David wrote this in a time of serious suffering and pain. And in the midst of that, he calls out to God to be reminded of the brevity of life. And ultimately, David acknowledges that he must put his hope in God. He doesn't put his hope in venting his frustrations or in heaping up wealth in this life or even in himself. Just like we can't put our hope in technology to remove all of our suffering and sorrow and to let us live forever. And to be honest, if we as Christians want to live forever in a fallen world, then we have thought far too little of eternity with God. So in Psalm 39, David reminds us to put your hope in God. To put your hope in God. And as we go through this psalm this morning, we will see three parts or sections. First, we will see silence in suffering, then perspective in pain, and finally, a request for redemption and relief. So let's begin by looking at verses one through three. David writes, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. 
I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. The first thing we see here is silence in suffering. David is silent in the face of suffering, and we are to follow in his example. When life is difficult and times are tough, we need to be particularly careful with our speech and with our conduct. We need to guard our ways and to guard our mouths. David even goes so far as to say that he will muzzle his mouth, guard his mouth with a muzzle. And to be honest, this is good advice for us no matter the circumstance. We don't only need to watch our mouths during tough times. It's always easy to say something, to speak up and to share your mind about what you think is best and right. It's often much harder to keep silent. It's much harder to listen first, to consider your thoughts, and then to decide whether it's appropriate to say anything at all. And we're reminded of this in several places in scripture, like in the book of Proverbs, where it says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And James also reminds us of this in his letter when he writes, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As Christians, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. So guard your mouth with a muzzle. And I want to warn us further that in this digital age, this includes more than just our mouths. It includes our thumbs, too. It's all too easy to hide behind a device and rashly type a text, send an email, publish a post, or leave a comment. Social media and the internet are awash in hot takes and hasty opinions. And how easily our intent can be misconstrued in written form versus a face-to-face -face conversation. I want to warn us to not only guard our mouths with a muzzle, but to guard all forms of communication. It's often easier to speak nothing than to speak wisely. So be slow to speak. But I think what we see here in Psalm 39 goes beyond the normal admonition to watch our speech. David is particularly mindful of keeping his conduct and speech in check when he's in the midst of suffering. He is most likely concerned with what he might say aloud in his suffering, perhaps blaming God for his circumstances. And particularly in the presence of the wicked, he wants to watch what he says and does. Our most natural response to suffering is anger and frustration. And when we vent that frustration through our actions or our words, we can easily fall into sin. Let's consider the story of Job. In the book of Job, we see a picture of a man in great suffering. And after all of Job's property is destroyed, and all ten of his children were killed, and even his own health was attacked, his wife turned to him and said, Open your mouth and curse your God. Look at what he has done to you. But Job refused to listen to his wife and to curse God. And scripture says that in all this, he did not sin with his lips. When we are going through a particularly rough time, we would be wise to remember Job's words in his distress. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? 
let us be careful when we are frustrated and angry in our suffering that we do not sin with our tongue. David, here in Psalm 39, is clearly frustrated. He's angry. And he says in verse 3, My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Now, it's not clear if David is angry with his sin or with his situation. And there is a difference. Righteous anger is being angry at what, God, at what makes God angry, like sin. Unrighteous anger is being mad at God for our situation. We need to be on guard for unrighteous anger and frustration. How easy it is for us to lash out when we are angry and frustrated. Consider a relatively minor example. What's your natural response when you're trying to hit a nail and you miss and hit your thumb? Do you throw something? Do you spout off a curse word? Or how about when someone cuts you off on the 101? How do you respond in your actions or in your words? And sadly, through the last 18 months of this pandemic, we've seen an increase in outbursts and outrageous behavior. People are frustrated and they're lashing out. Just this year so far, the FAA has reported more than 4,600 incidents of unruly passengers on flights and they've initiated investigations into over 850 of those. That's more than the last six years combined. Road rage incidents are up. Retail and restaurant employees are being cursed at, yelled at, and blamed for things they can't control. Politicians and local school board members are being threatened in meetings and at their homes. Incidents of harassment, threats of violence, and actual violence are on the rise because of anger and frustration. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let this not be us. Don't let frustration with your situation control your actions or your words. And if we see here in verse 1 where it says, so long as the wicked are in my presence, let's not give the opportunity to non-Christians to see our harsh actions or words and to use that as an excuse to write off our faith and to write off our God. Let us keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable that they may see our good conduct and our good deeds and glorify God. We should respond differently to difficult times than the culture around us. In times of sickness and suffering, despair and frustration, we should not be lashing out or acting foolishly. Such behavior dishonors God and damages our witness. And our ultimate example of this is not David, but Jesus Christ. Isaiah pointed forward to the Messiah when he wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Peter also writes of Jesus' silence and suffering when he wrote, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ is the ultimate example of silence in the face of suffering. And his suffering was unjust, for he had committed no wrong. Yet he remained silent, trusting in a just God's just judgment. Fellow Christians, we are called to emulate Christ. We want to be more and more like him as we grow in sanctifi sanctification, to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And we see in these verses that he was silent in the face of suffering. Now, as a brief aside, I want to be clear 
that there are many unjust situations where we have every right to speak up. If you are suffering because of immoral and unjust actions, don't stay silent. You are not sinning with your tongue when you point out sin and when you are seeking justice. We have a system of law in this country available to us, and we may legitimately make use of our justice system. But even in so doing, we must reflect the character, the meekness, and the gentleness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, David here in Psalm 39 is in serious suffering. We don't know the exact circumstances of this suffering, although there is acknowledgement of sin in later verses. But this is more than just common frustration or annoyance. He is steadfast, though, in his commitment to remain silent in the face of suffering, lest he sin or give reason to the wicked around him to rejoice over him. But we see that as he keeps silent, his distress grows worse, and his heart becomes hot within him. And having no earthly outlet for his speech, he turns to God in prayer, asking for perspective and requesting relief. He finally breaks his silence in the best way possible, by humble prayer to God. He would not speak his fears and doubts before the wicked, but he would pour them out before his God. Let's move on to verses 4 through 6. He writes, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In the midst of his suffering, David calls out to God for perspective in pain. He cries out for perspective when he is in a season of pain. David wants to be reminded of the transience of this life and of the temporary nature of the suffering that he is experiencing. Amid sickness and suffering, it is good to be reminded of how fleeting this life is. David begins by asking God to make him know his end and what is the measure of his days. But this was not a desire to know precisely when his life was, would end. It was not a request to hear the specific date of his death. Rather, it is a prayer to understand that his days are numbered, that the remainder of his earthly life is as nothing compared to the eternity of God. David needs some perspective on the brevity of life when there is no peace in his current situation. And the Holy Spirit must be at work because this next point was also used by Pastor Daniel yesterday at Rick's memorial service in Riverside. And it's this, that when God made mankind, he made us to live forever. Death wasn't in the original design, but when sin entered the world, death came with it. I think Tim Challies had a good uh, quote here on this. He wrote, God promised that sin would bring death, and God always keeps his word. Sure enough, the day Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, death entered the world. It has never left. Our first parents died, as did each of their descendants. So too will we. Like the sun that rises sets again, the life that begins must also end. On this side of the curse, death is an inevitability for us all. 
Our days are numbered, and we would be wise to remember that. David here compares his days to a few hand breaths. And a hand breath was one of the smallest units of measurement in ancient Israel. One hand breath is the distance of four fingers put together. It's just a few inches. That's tiny. That's nothing at all. And that's what David compares his days to, a few inches. David is saying our days are very short. And compared to God, our lifetime is as nothing. And I'm reminded of Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The God of the Bible is an eternal God. He has no beginning and he has no end. Time doesn't pass by him like it does us. He sees all of time equally vividly. In the book of Revelation, God says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God has always existed and always will exist. The beginning of time as we know it, the creation of the heavens and the earth, that's not the beginning of God. He existed before it. He has no past and he has no future. When time words occur in the scriptures, they refer to our time, not to his. A.W. Tozer wrote, God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all of our tomorrows as he has lived all of our yesterdays. So our lifetime before him is as nothing. C.S. Lewis illustrated it this way. He suggested that we think of a sheet of paper infinitely extended. That would be eternity. Then on that piece of paper, draw a short line. That line would represent all of time. As the line begins and ends on that infinite expanse, so time began in God and will end in him. A proper picture of God's eternity gives us perspective on our lives, that our lives are brief, incredibly brief, compared to the eternal nature of our God. David here is calling on God to remind him of this perspective. He needs this perspective when he has no peace, when he is in the midst of sadness and suffering, and he longs to be uh, reminded that this life is momentary, that we are but a shadow and a breath in this world. The Apostle Paul went through much suffering in his life before it was ended by the Roman Empire. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions countless imprisonments, countless beatings, and often being near death. And he goes on to say, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." This is a man who experienced severe suffering and hardship in his life, and not just once or twice, but at many different times during his years as an apostle. 
Yet in comparison to, the eter to eternity with God, Paul considers these hardships to be only a light, momentary affliction. He also wrote, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul finds comfort and hope by not dwelling on the here and now, on the things that are seen. But instead, he looks to the things that are unseen, which are eternal. Are you in a season of sadness and suffering? Are you right now experiencing problems and pain? As hard as it may be to believe, these are light and momentary afflictions in comparison to an eternal weight of glory. Our toils here in this life are as nothing before God. Consider the brevity of this life and have the proper perspective when you are in pain. Put your hope in our eternal God. Now, in the midst of this prayer for perspective, we see the word selah, and it's repeated again at the end of verse 11. And this Hebrew word is found in many places in the Old Testament, and we've already seen it in several psalms. But I want to remind you of its significance. Many scholars say it speaks of a reflective pause, a pause to meditate on the words just spoken. And I think it fits well here, and again in verse 11, as an appropriate call for each one of us to pause and think of the shortness and the frailty of our lives. It's far too easy for us when doing our daily scripture reading or even when studying the Bible to read straight through without really giving much pause for reflection or contemplation. As Christians, we are called not just to read God's word, but to meditate on it day and night. And the meaning here is not the view of Eastern meditation, of emptying your mind, but actively thinking about it, to ponder what God is saying to us and how we should live in light of that. And I think the selahs placed in Psalm 39 are markers for us that the brevity of our life and the eternity of God is a weighty concept worthy of our reflection. Life is short and eternity is long. That's a rock-solid truth we find in the Bible that we would be wise to think about, to meditate on. And it should give us great comfort, particularly during trying times. Now, the word in verse 5, translated breath, is the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means a vapor or a breath. And it's the same word that the preacher used in Ecclesiastes when he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And one of the key themes of the book of Ecclesiastes is the frailty of life, how life is like a breath or a vapor. Life is not only short, but it can be gone in an instant. We don't know which day will be our last. A month ago, we remembered the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. On that Tuesday morning 20 years ago, there were nearly 3,000 people who woke up and went through their day with no knowledge that it would be their last. We take it for granted that today will be like yesterday and tomorrow will be just like today. We don't give enough thought to the frailty of our lives, that our time is but a shadow 
or a breath. In vain we rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will be, without giving thought to eternity. For the Christian, it should not be so. Let us, like David here, remember that this life is short and eternity is long. Put your hope in our eternal God. And here we come to the final section of Psalm 39, verses 7 through 13. Let me read it. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David continues his appeal to God here with a request for redemption and relief. After remaining silent in suffering and asking for perspective in his pain, David now turns to God with a request for redemption from sin and for relief from his suffering. With a right understanding of the brevity and the frailty of life, David puts his expectation and his hope upon God and not upon himself or this life. Considering the world and everything in it, David knows that such vain things are all passing away. There is nothing in this life to put your hope in that will not pass away. There is nothing in this life to put your hope in that will not inevitably let you down. Only God will last forever. Only God will never let you down. He is the only thing worthy of all our hope. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. He wrote, Here the psalmist steps off the sand and puts his foot on the rock. Happy is the man who can say to the Lord, My hope is in thee. What a wonderful picture of stepping off of shifting sand and onto the solid rock. David puts his hope in God, not in himself or the things of this life. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are some signs here that David is suffering because of his own sin. And as a reminder, last week, Pastor Ryan gave us the answer to the question, when we are experiencing sickness or suffering, is it, re is it a result of our own sin? And the answer is a strong maybe. In the Bible, we see examples of suffering as a direct result of personal sin, and we see examples of suffering that are not directly tied to personal sin. So when we as Christians experience suffering, it certainly can be the result of our own sin. God disciplines those whom he loves. And regardless of whether or not the suffering is a result of our personal sin, we should be living a life of daily repentance because we are daily sinners. As a follower of Christ, we should be regularly acknowledging, confessing, and turning away from our sin and turning back to God. And David cries out here, deliver me from all my transgressions. He turns away from his suffering and looks at his sin. He no longer dwells on his suffering and pain, 
but he acknowledges his sin and he turns away from it and turns toward God. He recognizes that his suffering is of little account compared to his sin. So before asking for relief from his suffering, he asks for redemption from his sins. And he turns to the only one who is able to deliver him from all his transgressions, to the only one who can bring redemption. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only one who can deliver us from our sins. The only way we could be reconciled to God was through a Redeemer, a Redeemer who is truly human and also truly God. And Jesus Christ is the only true Redeemer. In his human nature, he perfectly obeyed the whole law and suffered the punishment for human sin on our behalf. And only because he is fully God were his obedience and suffering perfect and effective for us. Only he was able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. He lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserve to die. As sinners, our earthly life will come to an end. And the punishment for our sin is death. And after death comes judgment. And apart from saving faith in Christ, we are destined for, e for eternity in hell, separated from the love of God and in eternal torment. But if we call out to God, if we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus, the one who defeated death, we can live with God forever. So David cries out to God for deliverance from all his transgressions. Have you? Have you stopped trying to look to the things of this world for your deliverance and turn to God instead? If you have not, let today be that day. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. He will deliver you, and he's the only one who can. David knows this. He doesn't try to justify himself or excuse his actions. He remains mute. He does not open his mouth in his own defense. He knows that he is a sinner and that his suffering and pain ultimately come from God. He remained silent in his suffering, refusing to voice his complaints or grumblings. And he refused to open his mouth in excuse or self-justification. But that did not prevent prayer, which must never cease. And so after requesting redemption, David turns to God and asks for relief. He says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. David is spent. He is exhausted. He is worn out in his pain and suffering. And so he turns to the only one who can remove it. When you're in pain, when you're suffering, it's easy to look to the things of this world for relief. Many people look for relief in alcohol or drugs. And in fact, in the last 18 months, we've seen a rise in alcoholism and drug overdoses. Some people turn to food for relief. Many turn to entertainment, staring at screens to forget their problems, even if only for a little bit. But David, instead of looking for relief in the things of this world, turns to God. He knows that God is in control of all things to include his present suffering. And God is the only one who can truly remove and relieve it. He goes on to say that when God disciplines his children for their sin, 
He consumes like a moth the things we try to rely on in this life, the false sources of comfort that do not bring true and lasting relief. We heap up wealth, thinking that money can solve all our problems. We look to alcohol, drugs, and entertainment to soothe our troubled souls. But like a moth to clothing or a locust to crops, all that can disappear in an instant. Put your hope in God, not in the things of this world. David says again, surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Another reminder that this life is short and eternity is long. David ends this psalm with a final plea. He says, hear me, God, and act. Do not remain silent to the sound of my tears. And turn your angry gaze away from me that I may smile. If you are in pain or sorrow, despair or suffering, I urge you to call out to God. He will hear your desperate plea. Put your hope in him. And finally here, David says that he is a sojourner and a guest, that he will depart this life and be no more. Christians, this is just our temporary residence. This is not our home. We are guests here, like all those who have come before us. We live a life on this earth briefly before eternity with God. Because you see, while we are sojourners here in this world, we are not sojourners from God. It says we are sojourners with God. He has put eternity into our hearts, and he has prepared for us a home. We don't belong here. We belong with God. And so I say again, life is short and eternity is long. Put your hope in God. Let's pray.